So I kind of feel like maybe the projector blowing this morning could, could potentially be sort of my fault. Uh, and why I say that is because the last couple of weeks I haven't had any pictures or any words up on screen. And so, you know, this morning I do. Well, I should rephrase that. I did. I had. I had some pictures that I wanted to share with you. You're going to just have to commit these names to memory and go and do a Google image search afterwards uh, because it really was just a picture of two guys. And this morning I wanted to introduce you to two people. One of them you know well. You know the name. And as soon as I know the name, say the name, you're going to go, ah, yes, okay, I know exactly who that is. And the other one is a name that maybe you don't no, too well. I tell you what, can you get the slide up on the screen at the back there at all for me? Because I just realized my notes relied on the slide and I don't have the date of birth. I mean, I've got the names, but I can't remember when they were born. So if we can, there we go. Okay, next. Perfect. So that you don't need to look at the back. I will explain it to you. Don't worry. The first person I wanted to introduce you to this morning is Alexander Graham Bell. Anybody heard the name Alexander Graham Bell? Kind of rings a bell, doesn't it? <laughs> right there. So Alexander Graham Bell was born on the 3rd of March, 1847 in Edinburgh in Scotland. As we all know, he was an engineer and an inventor. And most of us should know by now, we've heard it somewhere along the lines, Alexander Graham Bell was credited with discovering and patenting or inventing and patenting the first practical Telephone. Now, I kind of have merrily gone on through my life thinking, there we go. That's the sum total of history, Re reduced down to one guy invented the telephone. He kind of founded and started AT&T, and the rest is history. But the next guy that I wanted to introduce you to was a man by the name of Elisha Gray. Elisha Gray has a fascinating story. Elisha Gray was born a couple of years before Graham Bell. Uh, he was born on August the 2nd, 1835 in Ohio in the United States of America. He too was an engineer and inventor. What I didn't know was that Elisha Gray invented the first liquid transmitter that is crucial to the telephone. He invented the portion that makes the telephone work. Now, this is where history gets kind of interesting, and I suppose it depends who you read and who you kind of cling to. So I'm just going to share some facts and try not to make too many judgment calls about it. But the patent for the telephone was lodged in the United States Patent Office in Washington, D.C. on February the 14th, 1876, which kind of reminds me that engineers and nerds typically don't worry about, you know, romance and love. They're too busy focusing on their creations and they're working on that. And instead of sending roses and flowers and cards to their loved ones, they were lodging patents. But the patent for the telephone that was lodged on the 14th of February, 1876, was lodged by Elisha Gray. That same day, a few hours later, lawyers for Alexander Graham Bell went to the same patent office and lodged a patent for a telephone with a few hastily written notes in the margins. Hmm. The interesting thing is Alexander Graham Bell wasn't even in Washington DC when that happened. He was in Boston. 
And his lawyers caught wind of what was going on. And his lawyers rushed in and did it without him even realizing. Naturally, because the two patents looked so similar and there was an overlap between them, the patent office kind of held back and said, wait a minute, we need some explanations over here. We see similarities. We can't file two things for the same thing. Uh, What's going on? So both men, Elisha Gray and Alexander Graham Bell, were given time to add a couple of amendments and write a few reports as to what's the differentiating thing here. Two weeks later, Bell's lawyer submitted Alexander Graham Bell's amendments and further explanations to support his patent. History, as we know, went on to credit Bell as the inventor of the telephone because Gray did not submit anything further. Understandably, Gray took Bell to court, and there was an ensuing legal battle over who invented the telephone. After a long legal battle, the patent office determined, this is their summary, while Gray was undoubtedly the first to conceive of and disclose the variable resistance invention, that was a necessary part to it, as, is his, as in his caveat of February the 14th, 1876, his failure to take any action amounting to completion until others had demonstrated the utility of the invention deprives him of the right to have it considered. Listen to that statement again. Gray's failure to take any action amounting to completion until others had demonstrated it deprives him of the right to have it considered. Failure to take action, waiting for others to demonstrate if it actually works, deprives him. I wonder, I wonder if that will ever be said of any of us. I pray that it would never be said of me. And I pray that it would never be said of you. He failed or she failed to take action and rather waited for somebody else to demonstrate it. And therefore they are deprived of the right. Those are not my three points for this morning in case you're taking notes. If you have your Bible with you, won't you turn to Matthew chapter 25. Now, it's at a time like this. I'm thankful we've got Bibles in the pews in front of you. So if you have a Bible there, Matthew 25, uh, of course, if you have it on your phone with version or something like that, that's just as cool. So open up that, click on to Matthew 25. Uh, I, we should have done a sword drill. And, you know, the first person that can give me the page number gets like a candy or something. Somebody want to shout out the page number, Matthew 25? How much? 962? Okay, not your own Bibles, people. The Pew Bibles. You know, I'm trying to help visitors who might not know where Matthew is. Okay, Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You will find it if you struggle. There's a contents page up front. And uh, let's not all shout out random page numbers. But thank you. You've been most helpful. Matthew 25, we're going to be reading from verse 1 to 13. And what you might notice is this morning somebody did not read the passage of Scripture before I came up to preach. That's because we're not going to read through the thing in one go. I want to track through it and have a look at a couple of things that come out and then we'll summarize at the end. 
So in Matthew 25, verse 1, Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he says, At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. So just hold on there. When Jesus says, at that time, he's implying a context. At that time, the kingdom will be like, well, what time? What time are you talking about here, Jesus? You don't have to go there. But if you turn back to the beginning of chapter 24, Matthew 24, the disciples are walking along with Jesus. And they they notice the temple. Now, of course, within the nation of Israel, the temple is crucial to their identity. This is the symbol of God's presence among his people. This is the place we go to meet with God. And so the temple is a vital part of their identity. And so they, but they're also aware that the temple that exists at that point was not the temple that was built in the Old Testament. And that one was destroyed. This is a new one that's been built. And it's not quite as grandiose as that initial one. But there's still identity there. There's still a sense of this is important to us. So they're pointing it out to Jesus. And obviously the conversation is going around that. And Jesus says, you see these great stones? You see this building? You see this place that you're looking at? I tell you the truth, it's going to be destroyed. Not one stone will be left on top of another one. It will be utterly destroyed. Now, of course, for the disciples, for the, the Jews of the time, this is that's a huge deal. So we read in verse 3 that the disciples come to Jesus privately. And this is great because it shows there. So saying, Jesus, help us understand. Help us understand what you said and what you meant about the temple being destroyed. So Jesus then begins this apocalyptic discourse, this image of the end of time, this image of when Christ will return. And and this is blowing the disciples' minds. And as he speaks about that last day, that end of time as we know it on earth, so he gives some illustration and he gives some examples And as he speaks to them, he starts talking and telling them they need to watch out. In fact, in chapter 24, verse 42, he says, keep watch because you don't know when this will happen. And as he goes on with the illustrations, he then turns to parables. And this is the parable that he begins with in chapter 25. And in that parable, there are a couple of things that jump out immediately. There are these ten virgins. Five of them are wise, five of them are foolish. And we know that a virgin is typically a young woman of marriageable age who has not had sexual relations with the man. If there's a wedding coming, because this is the parable about a wedding coming, it kind of makes sense that there are going to be a group of ladies, young women, who are part of the celebrations. Because there will be bridesmaids, undoubtedly. And they're all they're laughing and celebrating and joyful because their friend is getting married. And so this group of girls is going to attract a group of girls. And they're going to be young women coming along to this. The important part is not the fact that they're virgins or that they're even women or young ladies in this case. What Jesus is saying is there's this homogenous group that from the outside kind of look the same. But half of them are wise, half of them are foolish. Uh, The Greek word for wise is phronimos. And while it does tend towards someone who is intelligent or someone who is smart, 
Some of your Bibles, if you're reading, I think, the ESV or the CSV, it might use the word prudent. And that's kind of part of what Jesus is getting at here in their wisdom. Yes, they're smart and they're wise, but they're prudent. They understand the, the need to prepare and to plan ahead. They understand that they, they need to be wise with their interests and their assets. They need to be prudent with what they have. It's someone who understands what the wise course of action will be and then deliberately takes action. In fact, if we pause here and just think about the topic of wisdom, scriptures are full on this topic. The Bible speaks of the importance of wisdom. Proverbs chapter 9 begins, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. When we come into that place of acknowledging just who God is in relation to us, and we, we don't fear Him in, in that sense of terror, Oh no, woe is me, I'm going to be destroyed, even though there's an element of that. We revere Him. Because we understand He is infinitely holy and glorious. And so we worship Him. And that's the start of wisdom. The writer of Ecclesiastes kind of speaks of the importance of wisdom. And in chapter 12, as Ecclesiastes is finishing off, we read that not only was the teacher wise, but he imparted that wisdom. He imparted that knowledge to others. And he summarizes and says, this is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God, keep His commandments. This is the duty of all humanity. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5, Be careful how you live, not as foolish, but as wise. Wise, prudent, taking action and understanding. But those are contrasted with the fools. The Greek word for fools here is the same word that we get moron from. Okay, so basically, these five young ladies are morons. That's what Jesus is saying. This is a person who is notably stupid and lacking in good judgment. It's the kind of person who doesn't think through their actions. They fail to plan ahead. You ever had a moment in your life where you didn't think about the consequences of doing something? And this is the kind of person who doesn't plan ahead. They just merrily go with the flow. There's a party coming up and there's some excitement. So we're just going to go along and just kind of see what happens as we get there. And we are foolish. Again, Scripture speaks to the fool. Proverbs chapter 9, I just quoted about the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Well, verse 6 goes on to say, Learn, leave your foolish ways behind. Learn to be wise. Possibly a psalm well known to many of us. Psalm 14 and verse 1. The fool says in his or her heart, there is no God. And Paul writes to the church in Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. The people of this world, he, he kind of goes on to say that without the spirit within them, they think this is foolishness. When we gather in the name of, the, of Christ, they think we are fools for this. So Jesus says there's this group. Half are wise, half are foolish. And he goes on to say in verse 3, The foolish ones took their lamps, but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. Now, both groups take lamps. This is good. This is necessary. Uh, we know it's evening time in the story. We need light to see where we're going. And so both of them grab their lamps. But the foolish ones only think about the immediate they only think about right now, thinking everything will work out right now. And they don't plan. 
It's the here and now and nothing thereafter. The wise ones take into consideration that things might not go according to plans. We better be prepared. It kind of reminds me of the scout motto, always be prepared. And seeing as how this is 2018, they'd probably be able to join the scouts. But that's a different message for a different day. In the scope of this story, this is the crucial verse. This is what the, the story and the parable hinges on. This is the critical moment. The rest of the story is unpacking from this verse or these verses. Half were declared wise. Half were declared foolish. What differentiates the wise from the foolish? It is because the wise saw beyond the here and now. They didn't just live in the moment, taking what comes right there. They prepared and planned for what may happen. They took the necessary precautions. Indeed, they were prudent. Jesus continues in verse 5. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. Now, there's nothing untoward about this in this story. You and I might transfer into the story our reality. And what I mean by that is next Saturday morning, I get the incredible joy of officiating a wedding here at White Rock Baptist Church. I love doing those kind of things. But we live in a very different world. You see, next Saturday morning, I will get up. And if I'm in the mood, I might go for a run. I probably won't because it's probably going to be raining, even though it's beautiful weather today. But I'll take my time and I'll get myself ready. And I'll come through to the church just before 11 a.m. because the wedding starts at 11 a.m. And at 11 a.m., we'll go through the processional. We'll do everything. We'll exchange some vows, exchange some rings, pray and bless the young couple and send them on their merry way. I'll be home before lunch. This is not the reality in these days. Weddings didn't happen like that. When a wedding was announced, it was announced as a, we're going to have a wedding around about then. It might be after the next full moon. It might be shortly after harvest. It might be when some seasonal change occurs. And so we know there's a wedding happening around about then. Which immediately makes the foolish ones seem all the more foolish. They would have known there's no guarantee that the wedding is going to take place in the immediate here and now. It was not uncommon in those days for a groom or the groom's party to actually go on a journey just before the wedding. And that journey was to go and fetch family and friends from little towns and little villages and wherever they might be in the geographical region. And as they would go and fetch them, so the gathering would grow and the party bus, as it were, kind of took on life and energy and grew. And then they would start making their way back to wherever the wedding was going to take place. So it's only natural that the bridegroom is a long time in coming. And so they begin to become drowsy and they fall asleep. And then in verse 6, at midnight the cry rang out, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. And then all of the virgins woke up, trimmed their lamps. And the foolish ones said to the wise, give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. Finally, the groom is here. The party can start. We can hear them. Even as they say, come out to meet him, it's because he's not literally right there in the right now. 
We can see Him in the distance. We can see the lights. We can hear the joy. We can hear the, the laughter and the celebration. We know that's the wedding party. Come on, everybody, let's go. It's party time. And so the virgins do this. They light up their lamps to go and join the celebration, to go and become a part of what's going on. And they realize that they're out of oil. Uh, the lamps won't light either way. Uh, if, even if they light, they won't last. And so they realize their friends, the wise ones, have got some extra oil. So they ask, give us some of your oil. Verse 9, no, they replied. There may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. Now, we could read a verse like that and go, wow, those friends were mean. I'm like, their friends are asking for oil and they just go, no. You didn't think ahead. It's your tough luck. Go find somebody. It's the middle of the night. Good luck with that, by the way. No, that's, that's not actually what they say. They don't scream, No. Now, there's nothing wrong with the NIV translation here because the original Greek text is in the negative. But the word no doesn't actually exist there. In fact, the, the ESV translates it rather by saying, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. You see, these wise friends aren't being mean. These wise friends are being wise. And so they know that if we share the oil we have, it's actually going to end up badly for all of us. So there's no point doing that. No one wins in that regard. So go quickly. They offer advice. Go and buy. Go and find somebody. You will find somebody. Go quickly. And so off they go. Who knows? Maybe you'll find and get back in time. Verse 10 continues. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet and the door was shut. Now we see here that the foolish ones have not made it back in time. They have not found oil. They haven't returned. And the party is going to continue and go ahead. Now that might seem a little cold, but let's be honest. If you're planning a party and your bus is on the way and you're going and everyone's together, are you going to wait for five foolish young girls? Not a chance. Not a chance. It's not a sexist thing. It could equally have been said of five foolish young guys who hadn't planned ahead. In fact, in reality, it's generally guys who don't plan ahead anyway. <laughs> the party says, no, we're going on. We're having a wedding. There's a feast. There's a celebration. There's joy. We're not waiting for some people that haven't prepared and that aren't ready for this. We are continuing. So we are going for it. And the door is shut. There really should be an exclamation mark in the Bible over there. You see, the door isn't simply closed. A closed can be open. If I close the door, I can open the door. If I shut the door, no, that's a different story. That means the door is barred. That door is not going to open without effort and energy. And this, of course, makes sense. What better time to attack a small village or a group of people than when they're celebrating and partying? So we shut the doors. We shut the gates. Because we don't want to be disturbed. We don't want to be attacked. We want to enjoy our time together. And so we shut the door. 
Not only do we not want to be attacked and disturbed, we don't want some wedding crasher kind of freeload sponge coming in here trying to get free food and they don't even know anybody here. No, this is for the guests. This is for family and friends. So we're shutting the door. And Jesus goes on in verse 11. Later, the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. Now, a wedding party of this nature would have had stewards and get, um, servants helping and running around. And so as the party is going, yes, there would be somebody near to the door keeping an eye, keeping watch. And I can assure you this hired hand, this paid employee is not about to be fired for opening up the door for people who don't belong. See, the people who belong came with the wedding party. And someone who's late does not belong with the wedding party. And so the steward, the, the servant overseeing the door, the doorman is correct in saying, I tell you, I don't know you. I'm not getting fired for you. I'm sorry if you should have been here. Well, then you should have been here. And Jesus then closes off in verse 13. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. Jesus closes this parable with a warning that links back to the previous chapter and to everything that's been said so far. Watch out. Keep watch. Be alert. Be awake. You don't know when the kingdom of heaven will be revealed in all its glory. Watch for that return. So what does it mean? How do we interpret this parable? How do we make sense of this little story that Jesus has shared after everything in chapter 24 and 25? In its simplest, what Jesus is saying to his disciples, and therefore to us who read this story later, Jesus will return. Jesus is coming back. And he will take us to an almighty, eternal wedding feast. To a party the likes of which you have never seen in your life. And that includes even if you've been to one of those techno raves with 5,000 people and everyone's jumping at the same time. This is going to just leave that looking like a funeral procession. This is the party that we're invited to. And Jesus will return and take us to that feast, to that celebration. The Bible declares Jesus will come again. He will consummate His eternal kingdom and it will be glorious. Now it may be that sometimes we lose sight of this. We kind of look at the date and we realize it's 2018 and we kind of go, this is almost 2,000 years ago, Jesus. When are you coming? Why so long, Lord? Why not today? And, and I know we pray and I pray, Jesus, come again. But then I'm reminded of Peter as he, he writes in 2 Peter chapter 3. Peter says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Jesus will return. But the sad reality is if he returns today, many will perish. And Jesus does not want that. 
He is patient and gracious. Therefore, even as I pray, Lord, come again, I'm reminded I have to pray, Jesus, speak through me. Help me to share your gospel message so that those around me who do not know you might discover this invitation and might find life in you. But you know, even as we speak about Jesus coming again, for many people, that reality that Jesus is coming will ring true before the rest of us. What do I mean by that? It is simply that every single day, thousands of people die. I've shared that before. We try and hide from that fact. We try and do everything in our power to avoid death, to ignore death. When it comes, we we kind of deal with it quickly and close the door and forget about it. But yet every single day, thousands of people meet with Jesus face to face. And therefore, according to Scripture, we know Jesus is the groom. He is the one who says, yes, I know this person. This person is in me. This person belongs in the feast and the party and the celebration. And they're welcomed in. But I know that there are others Jesus looks at and says, this person is not in me. They do not belong at the celebration. And if you think I'm putting words in Jesus' mouth, then I would encourage you and invite you to read the entire chapter of Matthew 25. Because in three weeks' time, we're going to look at the closing portion where Jesus talks about the sheep and the goats. And we're going to see the similarities between the wise and the fools, the foolish people. And therefore, as I, as I read that entire chapter, as I see the story or listen to the story, sorry, I have to acknowledge that it must affect the way I live my daily life. Because either Jesus is literally going to return and it will be glorious. Or something is going to happen far beyond my control and I'm still going to see him face to face. That may happen before I go to bed tonight. That may happen before I head out the door tomorrow. No one is promised tomorrow. Jesus will return for us. And therefore it should shape the way I live my life. If I'm pursuing my own pleasure, if I'm pursuing my own comfort, if I'm pursuing my own wealth, security, safety, whatever the case might be, then it shows I've lost sight of this fact that Jesus is coming again. Do I really want to stand before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and say, yeah, Jesus, thanks for the life you gave me. I used it to pursue my own pleasure. I used it to pursue my own wealth. I used it to do my own thing. Friends, the only thing that matters, the only thing of value is pursuing God and his kingdom, pleasing him. I started by talking about Elisha Gray. And he had an idea that undoubtedly revolutionized the world. And yes, history kind of shares some facts. And I don't want to be harsh on Elisha. But I want to draw out the metaphor and and the similarity. You see, Elisha saw something. And he thought, "If, if, if I do this, maybe that will be the key component to make the telephone work. 
Elisha went on to do some other incredible things. He's the father of the modern day fax machine as well as a number of other inventions. But when it comes to the telephone, history will say he had a great idea, but he didn't act on it. He waited to see if it would work when somebody else did it. And only then did he try to say, hey, hold on. And history said, no, you waited. There was no action on your part. Therefore, you will not be credited. How do I draw a metaphor? How do I draw a similarity between that and this parable of the wise and foolish? Maybe you are on the outside looking in. And what I mean by that is the outside of Christ. And maybe you know some Christian people and you're here by, by chance or by God's design. And you're looking going, well, I first want to see what it looks like in their life. I want to see if it works out. The Bible would say that is foolish. Because we don't know what's going to happen in their life. The invitation is for you now. To accept and receive life. But maybe you did do that. But maybe it hasn't changed your daily life. And so my question to you is, are you prepared for Christ's return? Are you ready in your day-to-day living? Are you ready to meet your maker? Wise virgins are. Let's pray together. Jesus, as we read your word, as we wrestle with your parables. We pray, Holy Spirit, lead us into truth. Open our eyes to see. Open our ears to hear. Open our minds to understand. And open our hearts to receive truth. Father, when we read your word, yes, we know you are love. And you love us. But yet, Jesus, you still spoke truth. And you declare there are those who are wise and there are those who are foolish. And the invitation to us is to be wise. To be ready. To receive you. And to be ready to meet with you. I pray for each person in this room this morning. Only you know where they are in relation to you. God, I ask, would you reveal yourself to them and draw them in? Father, for those of us who perhaps understand this, yet haven't allowed it to change our daily living, and we're still out pursuing our own thing, focused on the here and now, forgetting about eternity or tomorrow even. Oh God, would you open our eyes? And would you make us wise in you? For we would ask this in your matchless and glorious name. And together we say, Amen.